When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Well, 2023 has been quite a year for sports in many different ways, good, bad and ugly, and quite fantastic at times uh, for both uh, Ross and I. Uh, both of us had the opportunity to travel to some international events this year. I went to the World Athletics Championships in Budapest, and Ross was at the Rugby World Cup, which was uh, very special, I think, for both of us. So in this episode, we're going to wrap up uh, some of the news that's been happening uh, on our various channels, particularly on our Patreon channel, and uh, some of the other news and highlights throughout the year, and also pick our best uh, choices for 2023 in terms of highlights, lowlights, controversies, all that sort of thing. So uh, that's a chance for us to kind of wrap up 2023. But let's uh, kick things off with the man that's sitting opposite me at the moment, and that's uh, Professor Ross Tucker, who's uh, got more scars than, uh, I don't know what has a lot of scars, but a lot of scars, because uh, just over a week ago, Ross, you came a, a very badly a cropper uh, during one of our gravel bike rides. In fact, we'd done the race the day before where you <laughs> finished first vet and 10th overall. And then the next day went for a nice casual ride and uh, you found a bump in the road that uh, caused you to went right over the handlebars. It was quite a, a nasty accident. And I was just behind you. I but saved uh, you guys. You, you saved us because you went over this thing before we did and uh, took a really bad fall. I mean, there was a lot of blood lying on the side. If you saw our social media channels on our on our social media over that time, you would have seen some uh, some pools of blood, and it was quite dramatic. But uh, how are you feeling? I mean, there's it. It's been it's been a week, almost two weeks now since it happened. Yeah, I've been better. I've had better weeks in my life than Shaman. last week, especially the. Especially the first three or four days, and that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday afterwards, I could I could literally not move. I couldn't yeah. get up by mm. myself, unassisted, because I couldn't use my hands because they were both damaged. <laughs> I think I've done ligaments in my left arm, so I can't type. Mm. My right thumb and hand were really sore, so I couldn't push myself up, and mm. my ribs were sore, so I couldn't use my core. <sighs> so I had to be lifted up like a bag of potatoes every time I had to stand up, and then... I couldn't put weights on the left leg because it was so bruised, the knee and so on. So I was hopping back and forwards to the bathroom between the bed and the couch oh. and having to like call for assistance every time I got up. It was unbelievable. Like quite humbling. So your actually. girlfriend like, is basically like a nurse. Yeah. And then I think, uh. I think, shit, what must it be like to fracture your pelvis or do mm. something really bad where you need even assistance in the bathroom? Mm. You need a, you need like a permanent person. So then I think actually I was lucky. And unlucky at the same time. Yeah, well, but, you didn't break anything, which was... Yeah, that was... Yeah. So, so yeah, the... the but eight uh, stitches in your arm. I mean, we were there trying to sort of uh, wash it out with some Dettol and some disinfectant actually at the crash site. And I was so scared to... of an infection. Eh? Yeah. I mean, we've, Because literally, we've... remember, two weeks... two In the two weeks before the crash, we'd had two mm. conversations about people who had died as a consequence of, like, gravel infections yeah. and or surgical infections. Mm. 
And here I was getting stitched up in the hospital and I kept <laughs> kept saying, are you sure it's clean? Are you sure it's mm. clean? I said, no, it's absolutely clean. No problem. And I was thinking, no, 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 no get, clean it more. Clean it more. Because mm. the result really of that scared. is it, it, you can get septicemia, yeah. which can be fatal. If you're not yeah, and we have a, we, yeah, we know we know people who've had yeah. fatal septicemia and it's, it's quite mm. terrifying to think that that sort of thing can happen. So, mm. yeah, and then a concussion on top of that. So for the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I could neither type with basically eight fingers. I had two fingers on the right hand that could work. Mm. And I couldn't look at the screen anyway because I'd get nauseous within a few minutes. of the... So that was a different experience. And that's why, incidentally, I haven't published anything on Patreon. So now you know why. <laughs> and I apologize Because I wanted to let the patrons know why I couldn't publish. But the reason I couldn't publish stopped me from letting them know why I couldn't publish. So <laughs> I was stuck in, a, in 12 days or whatever it was of purgatory so yeah it was it was an interesting experience and i wouldn't recommend it that also gave me new appreciation for tour de france cyclists though who because mm. even even when all you've got is like road rash it's so inhibiting because mm. like your skin because i got some fairly deep ones on the front left side and on both both knees and once that scar starts forming it actually gets so tight that even even movement through the range of motion of a pedal motion would be sore every time you push the pedal down sure. it's just superficial stuff but it's mm. just it's like 24 hours it's seven out of ten pain mm. and you're uh, riding with a tour de france stage where i mean couldn't and they literally this. get back on the butt the next day a lot of the time and, don't and, they after and a real crash. Though, like just mm. it's new appreciation remember when roglic had his ribs ba- stra- strapped up and so on and i i don't even think i broke any i just think i strained intercostals or mm. dislocated maybe but I couldn't imagine breathing hard for five or six days after that. So, yeah, it gave me new appreciation for that level of toughness as well. Mm. Mm. So we were just looking at, I mean, just as a point of interest, because uh, it's part of what we do here on the podcast, but also it's part of your experience about the, the four stages of uh, of wound healing, Hem- hemostasis, inflammation, proliferation, and remodeling. Mm. I mean, I, I suppose they all make sense, but hemostasis is obviously when the blood rushes to the site of the injury, isn't it? Yeah. And the clotting plot. And the clotting so you plot, get yeah. you get constriction of the blood vessels and the platelets, and mm. you, you have to create a barrier as soon as possible. It's actually miraculous to watch it go happen in you. Yeah, I mean it's happened to everyone, right? Even if it's a little cut, mm. like okay, it bleeds, it clots, it heals, and then two weeks later or however long, depending on the severity, it's gone. Mm. No evidence at all. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. quite amazing to watch. But yeah, you get these. So I've now got these like fairly substantial, like the front of my leg looks like a mountain range yeah it's incredible like a yeah like with all different levels of clotting happening depending on the depth of the wound and and is it now in that sort of tight phase yeah. where you feel like you're splitting it every time you walk yes exactly yeah. like the mm. contract the muscle or bend my knee i feel like i'm going to then rip the mm. the clot open so mm. yeah so that happens quite quickly and then what what was second the inflammation mm. inflammation yeah. yeah yeah and that's the bit they gave me some fairly powerful anti-inflammatories it's always tricky to know whether you should or shouldn't encourage inflammation. Mm-hmm. You know, like injuries, you you want to limit it, but it, it's part of healing, right? Because if you didn't have it, so I always thought of inflammation as the as as the let's let's equate the damage to an earthquake striking a city, mm-hmm. damaging the buildings. Inflammation is the process of removing the debris and bringing new materials in. That's effectively what it was, like, or so that you could bring new materials in. So dump trucks have to get in wrecking balls have to knock down these structures so that you can build new foundations new buildings on top of them mm-hmm. the problem is that if inflammation goes unchecked then the 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 process actually causes more damage than it 
<laughs> he's trying to fix, you mm. know. So there's a, there's always a delicate balance. That's why there's all that debate about should you take anti-inflammatories after injury and so on. That's yeah. even a muscle strain. Never mind something like like this where you get where you get because you actually wounds. want the inflammation because that's yeah. it's doing the job. Exactly, it's a mm. necessary part of healing. It's not fun though because you get swelling, and swelling compresses nerves. Mm. Those nerves are already sensitized by the inflammatory chemicals mm. like prostaglandins that are there, and so now you get pain caused by inflammation. So okay take the pain away, block the inflammation, but actually that might slow the healing down. So it's a, yeah, it's a bit of a dilemma. Mm. It's <laughs> but, interesting because if you look at some times when you look at those Tour de France and pro cycling events where they do fall and they've got, and they've got the, what they ha often happens the next day is they're kind of wrapped up in a, in a very sort of porous bandage. Mm. When they were treating you, even though you had quite substantial uh, wounds, they were saying, we just leave it open. Mm. I mean, is there a, why do they have bandages for the cyclists? I mean, does I think, it help with the healing process? I think comfort and to prevent infection. Yeah, that's true, yeah. Um, you know, like I guess the assumption in my case is that I'm going to rest up, relax, lie on the couch in the bed, which I did, and not going to do anything that predisposes me to another infection, whereas they're actually going to, you're going to be back on the bike, then you've got to cover it up because you, you might then increase the risk in another way. Mm, mm. So that's part of it. So you're applying ointments and then covering it so that those ointments stay on there for the five hours of the of stage yeah. 13 or whatever it is. Yeah, so there's that. Yeah, because I, I was also, I said to some people, should I should I cover it? And mm. I said, no, just apply the antibacterial and then leave it you know you want it to dry out as quickly as possible mm. whereas they've they've got different incentives mm. Mm. And it talks about proliferation which is kind of when the first granular tissue starts forming and all the nerves come back i mean that's mm. i guess that's the that's the phase you're talking about where the healing process starts the rebuild yeah the rebuild I mean, yes that's, yeah yeah exactly and then at the final stage remodeling which is kind of where the scar tissue comes in you you get the scars the chicks dig <laughs> yeah, there's that, and I mean sometimes, sometimes no scarring. Like you just get remodeling, and it it disappears because yeah. it's it's remodeled. It's literally new skin, no scars. Mm. I mean, I think this thing on my arm, my forearm, the stitches mm. will leave a scar. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah. But do you, I mean? Do you know if you you obviously heal slow when you're older? I'd yes. imagine. And we know that, for instance, diabetics, for instance, heal yeah. slower. So there's more chance of infection for people with diabetes. So yeah. I'm and, type, and type two, elderly, so like be open wearing. wounds are a major risk, right? Yeah. For infection. Mm. And yesterday, yeah. in fact, I took my daughter for her um, jabs, and now give a, they now give a tetanus jab, um, which they give her when she's now six years old, and another one at 12 years, which essentially gives a tetanus coverage mm. for the rest of her life. And tetanus yeah. is obviously something, and I think we were talking about this in the car a couple yeah, of weeks I, back, where I you can... A, I had a tetanus shot after yeah. this. Yeah. You can die of tetanus because you can't cure it, can you? Yeah, I read, a, I read a stat somewhere like untreated tetanus. If you don't get treatment for it, infection, I mean, it's once it once that thing takes hold, it's mm. yeah, <laughs> your numbers up. Yeah, so that's why yeah. you and yeah, you had a tetanus for this accident. Didn't yeah, you? They, yeah, and it was interesting that I remember the doc saying to me like, yeah, particularly he asked me, did you fall on tarmac or was it gravel? And I said, mm. no, it was gravel. And he said, okay, yeah, those. Those are, we, we treat those more seriously because the risk of infection is high. I don't know why. Mm. And I wasn't in a mind to ask him to explain that. Mm. But yeah, they gave me a tetanus shot. And I, and, and I know your, your your daughter had that classic after an injection, that vagal, yes, it was called a va vasovagal response where your mm. parasympathetic nervous system just inappropriately activates and you faint because your yeah. blood pressure drops. Yeah. I had that twice that same day. The once was in the hospital while they were doing the stitches because I think the guy, I could... Like you, they obviously they anesthetize it, but then the guy, I could feel his 
I could feel the pressure of his fingers like <laughs> digging in and <laughs> like pulling the flap out so that he could stitch it, I guess. And I, I remember saying to him, I said, I think I'm going to throw up. And the room was spinning and I nearly passed out. And then in the car with you, I did. That's right. Yeah. On the way home. You were so, just chatting. You had your Coke in your hand. Yeah. Next minute, I just saw your and head I, drop. And again, I felt like this wave of nausea. Mm. And then like your, your your car started like spinning. And I said, oh, this, I don't feel so good at the moment. Next thing I was being shook, shook awake, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. and like in a cold sweat. I was about to turn around and go back to the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's amazing how that, amazing, how you, yeah. that, 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 as you say, that parasympathetic system actually just yeah. kind of, I mean, what I suppose it's protecting the body, isn't it? In that, in that respect, it's yeah, shutting like you it's, down because it wants you to recover. I mean, it's inappropriate to, to do it. Like the most common time you see that or know of that happening is when people donate blood or have to give blood for mm -hmm. medical mm -hmm. tests, whatever. And they sometimes, in some people, they just see a needle and they faint. Yeah. I knew a girl once who who couldn't see blood in a picture. Like she used to used to sit in presentations, and if someone showed a picture of blood, she fainted in the seat sitting there. <laughs> so that's obviously like a massive. Not likely to be a doctor. And there's no right, no chance. No. There's no benefit to that. No. But in some other instances, like when it's a blood pressure related thing, fainting is good for you because it gets everything back down to level. Mm. And so now your heart has to pump mm. less against gravity than it did before. And that helps. It's interesting because they gave a rescue remedy and then they put her legs up just to kind well, of... Well, that's the key. That's yeah. the second part there. Mm. I don't know what the rescue remedy is doing, but the second yeah. part's the key. Just to calm her down. Yeah, mm. it's the same thing. That vasovagal, it's the same reason soldiers on parade. There's some funny clips of ball boys and tennis fainting yeah. during long rallies because they stand in like the hot sun for mm. a long time and then blood in the skin because you're trying to cool off mm. means less blood in the center blood pressure drops they faint you know mm. so because you're but when they say your your vessels are dilating in other words they're getting bigger mm. therefore there's less blood volume per stroke kind of thing yeah there's more blood now in this in the skin circulation yeah. Yeah. which means less in the heart circulation which means that it's stroke volume drops mm. and so because the, the heart basically pumps what it has available mm. In, I guess when somebody, it's failing, but. I guess when somebody, I mean, it's the same thing what happened to you in the car. It's and, and my daughter. It's kind of scary to see fainting because yeah. it's 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 kind of bizarre. It's somebody passing <laughs> out. It's, it's I mean, watching my daughter yesterday and seeing her eyes roll back, um, yeah, while we're kind of it's it's it's, it's slightly like a, almost like a fit, mm. but not but not. And as you say, it, it is this is the body's way of saying, okay, I need you to I need to lie down now. In in that instance. I yeah. mean sometimes you'll faint because you're in the early stages of some sort of cardiac problem. Then it's yeah. different obviously. Different, yeah. different yeah. ball game altogether. But yes. in your case it was just your body going, okay. Yeah, and I, I like it literally mm. you shook me awake and I said oh wow, well, yeah. I didn't even and know. And you were that completely fine. And within five seconds I said, Oh look I'm sweating and yeah. within five seconds I wasn't anymore and yeah. I was good to go. Amazing, <laughs> I know, I know. It was like a reboot almost. Sure. Well, we hope you get better soon because I know you haven't been on the bike for all this time. Yeah, so. and, I, and I feel I feel like I have to get a. I need to get back on a moving bike <laughs> because I know I'm going to have nerve problems mm. now. Mm. Even now, I like I, I watch a thing on Instagram of a guy crashing, and before I used to watch him. Now I actually flinch <laughs> when he flinch. falls. You know what I mean? Because it's like it's now I'm almost post traumatic yeah. stress. So I want to get back on the bike as soon as I can. As soon as I can grip the brake levers, I'll ride. I'm always fascinated. I mean, I remember asking Greg Minot, a great downhill mountain biker, the, the sort of greatest of all time, many people say. But I said to him, when you crash, does that not make you more cautious next time you ride? Because I know that for myself, um, I've crashed a lot of times on a bike and that's made me particularly bad yeah, on a once, mountain bike. Once bitten, right? Yeah. Mm. And um, he said, no, he doesn't think about that. So it's interesting to see what your reaction will be on a gravel bike because you know the 
you know the effects of a crash and mm. it will be fresh in your brain for now but how long do those effects last yeah. to the point where you might take more risk I, down I, the line? I know i'm going to be nervous the first time yeah. i'm on gravel like because even even the race we did the day before like the first kilometer or two on the gravel i was very sketchy mm. i felt very because i hadn't been on a gravel bike in months yeah on, on the gravel anyway yeah it's different yeah. but by the end of that i felt great yeah. i was bombing along i was and that's why i made kind of in the zone yeah because it was, it was good and i was just mm. annoyed I wanted to get the moment I crashed. I was like, I've got to get back on the bike just to pedal, you know, just to recondition. Yeah. <laughs> of course, my handlebar was in two pieces. Yes. <laughs> so, so that didn't happen. And now I feel. But the other reason I want to exercise is just to get blood flow because mm. I think I think blood flow will accelerate that proliferation and healing, even yeah. the inflammation. Mm. Um, Almost yeah, like just, clear out all the stuff yeah, that's yeah, in your just, arm. Just get yeah. some circulation going mm. again, and because mm. the moment my left arm is all swollen and nasty looking. Yeah. And I just want to get exercise heart rate cardiac output just to pump something through it you know yeah so yeah as soon as i can i'll be back yeah 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 for those of you who've fallen off anything i'm sure you can sympathize with the ross's situation it is not a nice thing to crash whether you're on whether you're on a skateboard or a bicycle or whatever it's a nasty <laughs> thing anyway on to other subjects talking about extreme versions I, I, one of the stories that's caught my eye this week in fact it was almost 10 days ago now but it's been doing the rounds on various social medias uh, is taylor swift's running uh, for her Eros tour that she started a while back, where she claimed, and I say claim because I'm very suspicious about these numbers, but this has been all over runnersworld.com um, and of various channels where they talked about the fact that she ran every single day for six months, and every day she did the equivalent of her full set. So people have worked out that the full set is three hours and 15 minutes. So what they were saying is she ran three hours and 15 minutes every day. Um, and what she did is she ran the fast songs fast. What that means, we don't know. And the slow songs, either a light jog or a walk. When I looked at that, three and a half hours a day for six months, that just sounds impossible. I mean, I, I, I'm a fan of Taylor Swift. I love her music. I think she's a, she's a great lady and I think she's very talented, but... Is she is that it, good at running that she can run three and a half hours a day for six months? I mean, that is elite level stuff. Has anyone watched, have you watched a concert to see how much movement there is in the concert? Well, I'd imagine, I mean, she is obviously in very good shape because that's her kind of vibe. But I mean, but, like, like she, most, of, most of that three hours, 15, she's standing still, surely. Yeah, but she's moving, dancing. I mean, she no, wants, but, to, she's obviously doing it because she also wants to look good for that concert, for that um, yeah. tour. I don't know. It sounds to me like one of those things where someone said, "Yeah, you, you're you're on stage for three hours fifteen, mm. and you do so much running, mm. and then they've extrapolated and extrapolated and ended up with something completely implausible." Mm. I mean, does it sound feasible? No, no, no it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like the kind of thing where in three hours fifteen of doing a concert, you might cover five kilometers. Well, they're claiming that she's. Some of the runners' world stories are saying that she was almost covering a marathon. Not, not is, a ch no mm, way. No way. It's, no, no, not a chance. That that sounds like did a teenager write that? No, 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 <laughs> no ways. Nobody's questioning it, which I find because, bizarre. Because um, even if you're running on stage, I mean, and and to be fair, I haven't watched one of her concerts. No, have you? Yeah, I've watched bits and pieces of concerts, and she is very is she, active and she's dancing but, a lot. But running four minutes, four no, and a half minutes a k, no, like no, no chance. She's not doing that. No, way. Way. no. I mean, she's not running a marathon, but they're saying that how there's been stories about how far she could run in those three and a quarter hours. And if she's running really, really slowly, let's say she's running seven, eight minutes a K, you know, she's still doing 15, 20, I 25 Ks. I bet that if she was wearing a, a, a smartwatch mm. or something, 
and you uploaded a concert onto Strava, it wouldn't be in the double figures kilometers. Mm. No. It's it's going to be like even 10Ks, you know, like mm. three kilometers an hour. Because, yeah, she might run from one end of the stage to the next mm. before belting the chorus out or, mm. so, or, or, or she may walk constantly. Mm. But... But she's not okay. Maybe to be charitable, fifteen k or something. Mm. Then, but I don't think then, she's doing it because she wants to be fit on stage. She's doing it because she wants to look as yeah, good yeah. As but her motive is her motive motivation is, is, is distinct looks. from what she's well, not what she maybe has claimed, but what the article is now extrapolated mm. from what she said is that she was running the equivalent of her concert, mm. and I'm saying that the equivalent of her concert could be twelve to fifteen k's, mm. even, not, even not a then, marathon. No, but even then, it's every day for six months. Oh, but, I, but, I then, but that's what runners will say all the time. You know, I run 10 goes a day. It would actually mean five days a week. <laughs> yes. And I could yeah. see that. I could see I that. I could see yeah. a healthy, fit, active person who's mm. training, running mm. 60K in four or five sessions a week. Yeah, but not three and a half, three and a quarter hours no, a day. No, no. I mean, that's a long time. Even if you're doing been, a jog, it's a long time to be jogging. lost in translation. No, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I know. So. And nobody yeah. seems to be Christian. I actually looked to see whether she'd come out and said, excuse me, people, this, this, it wasn't like that. It was like this, and you guys have misquoted me. Because nobody, she's not saying that, but it certainly seems like there's something lost in translation. Well, there. So. It's the yeah. same as when, like, Pidcock ran a sub-14 minute 5K. Yes. And it was actually just a GPS issue, you know. It's like... Mm. Things, things that don't make sense mm. are are nonsensical for a reason. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> and the idea of running three hours fifteen every day. So I could well see that she's running the equivalent of her concert distance, and her concert distance is not going to be. No. I mean, mm. no chance. Yeah, as opposed to maybe like even an elite tennis player, like let's say for example, because tennis seems to me as <laughs> this is a conversation direction direction this conversation is going. <laughs> Like it's an elite tennis player is is running a couple of k's in a, in a match, so maybe three k's in three and a half hours. That's tennis, right? Where like you stand, you serve, you run, you cover the baseline four or five shots. You're moving left to right. You stop. It's it's hard to accumulate distance in such a stochastic activity. Yeah. So I'd be really surprised if she's accumulating a lot of distance in those three and a quarter hours, even if she is highly active. And I mean, of course, like the activity is singing and dancing and so on. It's not just running and back and forth in straight lines. But I'd be very surprised. And so, yeah, she's probably running the equivalent distance, but it's not a marathon a day. No chance. Yeah. I'm amazed yeah. that because, I mean, my, my final word on it, I mean, it wasn't a story that came out of some dodgy publication. It wasn't an interview with Time where she claimed that. So, I don't know. Yeah, You'd expect them to get the facts. She's X and they've, they've made yeah. up the alphabet. Maybe. But, I, I, I mean... A reporter works for time. You'd expect to and would would interrogate the facts there and say, "Do you, what? What are you saying? You actually did that per day, or was it three and a half? I don't know. I mean, it just. I'm waiting for the the counter story that says actually that's not. There won't be one. Facts don't matter when you're a, when you're a brand. <laughs> Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so, I suppose not. I mean, there is, a, there is interesting stories because they say that when a Taylor Swift concert comes to town, it actually moves the needle in terms of the GDP of that particular area or province or or area because she brings in so much money and then it, it literally changes the, I mean, the zeitgeist. She, hasn't she single-handedly changed viewership of the NFL like to increase women viewership 20-something well, percent? Well, we all know why that. Well. Wow, that is. She's yeah. dating one of the Travis Kelsey. Yeah. Yes, and what's the team he's a member of? Kansas City Chiefs. So yes. they're Super Bowl champs. Eh? Yes, of course. Everybody, all the all the young 
fans of hers are now following that yeah. and because of his involvement mm. with her. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing. Speaking isn't it? of her and running and him, there was a thread on Let's Run calling saying asking basically and on their chat forums like who would win a 5k Taylor Swift or Travis Kelsey because he's a he's a tight end for the Chiefs and so he's a he's a big imposing athlete he must be 120 mm. kilograms mm. big guy like built for speed and power mm. and she's obviously not built for speed and power but maybe endurance but not a runner so they were asking who'd win a 5k <laughs> love those they always pop up on let's run those well yeah i mean hypothetical <laughs> questions talking about talk, i mean we always talk about uh, digressing a bit there's you just alerted me to something that i watched on the on the instagrams the other day with talking about alex dowsett against a professional rugby player on a watt bike so they were trying to see what peak power they could get absolutely so, relative absolute absolute okay so flat out player. um Correct. There yeah, was a rugby player. Yeah, so yeah. I think Alex Dowsett, of course, who was a former, I think he was a world champion on the time, time trial, trial at one guy, point. Yeah, yeah. He got 1,200 watts or something like that. But the for, rugby player. How long? Just as a single. I think it was let's just single effort. How yeah. high could they get? Yeah. And it was just a very short clip that he put on his channel. But um, the rugby the, guy get one six. One five nine seven or something like yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. So it was amazing. I mean, yeah. I, 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 I was, when I saw the challenge, I thought, okay. Alex Dowsett, he's obviously got power, but he's not what he used to be six months ago when he was still a pro. He's yeah. certainly not in the same shape. Um, but you're right. I mean, the, the rugby player absolutely trounced him in terms of absolute power. But whether you could maintain that for five minutes, obviously. So the interesting thing would be my <laughs> my one horsepower challenge in a rugby yes, player. Yes, I love this. Dowsett. So, so one horsepower, 746 watts. Yes. Basically, that's what I think. So who would win the one horsepower challenge between those two, do you think? Dowsett, I reckon. Just. Yes. Just. Just. Because that one minute... Sorry. So the the challenge would be how long can you sustain seven hundred and forty six for? What's your what's your longest period mm. in seconds that you can average one seven forty six? Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I think Dowsett would do that because those guys would be easy, around a minute, maybe maybe mm. less trained, under a minute. But if he was fit, he'd be he'd be in the two minute range, and that's a that's a really hard metabolic ask. Mm. But I just thought it funny because like I look at my power outputs on Strava or or mm. Wahoo. And I say, okay, what's my current one horsepower number, you know? Mm. And where is it for other people? Then <laughs> it's interesting. Obviously, the smaller you are, the harder it is, right? Because I yeah. mean, for Dowsett, that's ten watts a kilo. Yeah. For a rugby player, it's it's eight. Yeah. Less seven yeah. and a half. Yeah. Even. So, so yeah. that's why absolute relative makes a difference. Mm. But yeah, I think the one horsepower goes back to the cyclist. <laughs> We're squirreling <laughs> along here, so I apologise yeah. for taking ourselves into yeah, different we're tangents. Indulging our end of year, exactly, end of year exactly. function. Well, stick with us. Anyway, so moving on to when we talk about world class uh, training, Taylor Swift's got to be up there. But <laughs> if you believe it, but in terms of world class, Valencia Marathon happened mm -hmm. a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Repeatedly, one of the fastest marathons um, in the world. So a lot of the top professionals go there. Um, it's not sort of one of the big majors, but it certainly is attracting very much the top end of the of the uh, marathon market. And um, we know that one of our South African runners broke the South African record in the in the women's marathon and ran a sub two twenty five for for that uh, record that has stood for thirty odd years. But in the men's marathon, some sort of bizarre mm. pacing, wasn't it, compared to what we normally see? Yeah, and I didn't watch it to be honest. Um, no. You know, like it's hard enough watching the big city marathons at the moment. But the Valencia marathon happened and. It, it threw up some of the most aggressive, positive split pacing that we've seen in fast marathons. And what I mean by that is they were still fast, but they were paced really badly. 
Mm. Badly being way, way slower in the second half than the first. That's what we mean when we say positive split. So when the, for example, when the world record was set by Kiptum earlier this year, it was a big negative split where he ran the first half in 60.48, I think it was, and the second half in 59.47. So that's a minute and one seconds faster. So we'd call that a negative 61 split. Which is huge, Which is really big. The difference in Valencia was the winner ran a, a, a positive split of around 35 seconds. And one of the guys, one of the guys broke 205, but ran an almost four minute, just over three and a half minute positive split. So the uh-huh. first half was done in six, in one hour, 36 <laughs> seconds. And the second half, one hour, four minutes and 12 seconds. Sure. So it's just interesting though, because I think for what, for for whatever reason, and and I think again, largely it's shoes related. But we've got this new standard in the marathon that has emerged in twenty twenty three. The world record now is looking like sub two in a in a proper race, not a Correct. gimmick. Yeah, yeah for I sure. mean, we discussed that a couple of weeks. Do back. you think it's slightly in twenty twenty four then? No, because the Olympics. It'll be it'll be Maybe. interesting. Like if Kipton gets into Berlin. But you got to imagine the Kenyan, and I saw Kenyan actually did announce a preliminary marathon squad, and he is in it for the Olympics. Mm. And if that happens, then he's got one other shot in the year, and it's London. Or actually, Kipton's not running London; he's running in Rotterdam. So that's a fast marathon. It's, yeah, but it's not and world record stuff. Maybe not. Maybe, but Wendy, I don't. I don't know. It depends. Hey, mm. you get a perfect day. It, it's on, right? It's flat. <laughs> Yeah. At least, I didn't think Chicago was. Well, Chicago is also producing outstanding <laughs> yes. times, absolutely. So, so maybe, but the problem is, I think he's got one shot at it, not two. So mm. I'd be inclined to say, on the balance of it, he probably won't see another world record next year. Yeah. And also, I don't see other guys behind him having the same ability. Mm. So it's him or no one. It's I the world think. record, not two thousand thirty-seven or thirty-six or something. 36, it? It'll yeah. be thirty-seven, right? Yeah. So he's got a yeah, thirty-seven seconds is what we need. Thirty-five. Sorry, how's my maths? We should have added up. Yeah, it was one hour forty-eight seconds first half and fifteen and forty-seven. Yeah, one hour thirty-five. Yeah. Yeah, my maths wasn't so flash. Um, it doesn't feel like a lot, does it? No, but it's it's in it's enough. Hey? I mean, mm. and, and 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 so this is why I think this 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 caught my eye, is now to to match that the guys are going to go so so aggressively in the mm. first half. Like you're gonna they're gonna go out in one hour thirty seconds. Yeah. Because that puts you on for sub sixty one, and then forty nine out of fifty times they're going to blow, mm. because that's it's now got to the point where, like, and kept him. It's amazing he's keeping that much in reserve. Mm. You know, this suggests he could maybe go a little bit faster, but these other guys that go out in sub sixty one, sub sixty thirty even to try and break that world record, you're going to see a lot of performances like this where they just get slow and slow in the second half. So. I think there's a there's a new pattern emerging in a marathon where it's going to be like everyone go you know six or seven guys reach halfway on course mm-hmm. and it's last man standing, which is mm-hmm. and the women will be the same by the way because remember this year we saw a sub two twelve marathon from a woman which is an, an insane, mm-hmm. insane. So how are they going to break that? You've got to go sixty six minutes through halfway. For most women, that's a marathon half marathon PB. Yeah, I mean. It was interesting talking to our own South African marathon champion after she broke the record in Valencia. And I said to her, and I've actually asked this question before, I said, to be truly competitive and to give yourself the best chance of running your best time in a marathon, do you have to risk failure to ultimately succeed? So in other words, hmm. in other words, do you have to risk going out too fast and blowing up? Or do you run with the idea of always finishing? In other words, you know, do you go out there 
being conservative, pacing yourself correctly so that you, most importantly, if you run a good time, but you always want to finish. And she said that that was a big st mental step for her to think about it like that. Because for her, when she was running Olympic Games, for instance, she felt like that. Did she go with the break? Could she have gone with the break? If she did, would she, would she blow up down the line? And I think to some extent, is it, and I guess I'm getting to the question, if you're going to go and break sub two hours, you have to go out, I would assume, on a sub one hour pace to stand a chance of breaking sub two, ideally. Because yeah, you want, you you want because is it only possible to do a negative split potentially? Or mm, is it? No. I, yeah, I know. So like, let's say Kipton now. So he does 60, what did I just say? 48 first half. Mm. He'll be looking at his next one and saying, right, let's go 60 to 30. Right. And then still repeat the second half. But can he? I don't know. So you wouldn't want to think sub 60 and then hold on and see if I can just no. break sub 60 again. So give no, himself some time so. in the back. You'd want to, you'd want to try and finish stronger. You know, you'd want to always try and finish with a, mm. with a fast last 10 Ks, but, but it's fragile, right? Because what's the difference between 60, 48 and 60, 25? Yeah. It's one second one a kilometer. One second a kilometer. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so you say, well, I can, I can handle that. But that one second a kilometer might cost you three seconds a K in the second half. And that's what we saw in Valencia is like guys would have gone through the first half in 60, 30. So on course for sub 60, uh, mm. sub 201. Mm. And you're looking at that, you, you know, they're going through halfway at 10, 15 seconds faster than Kiptum did. Yeah. So now actually that world record is on. But the ability to recreate the pacing strategy of Kiptum, that's what's going to trip mm. him up. So it's going to be interesting, right? Because in this particular race, okay, it was one in 201.40 odd, mm. the lemma from Ethiopia. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. On any start line, there'll be three or four guys who could run that. But none of them can run it off the back of a 60-30. Mm -hmm. Is one of them going to understand that and say, you go, I'll come from the back and finish stronger? Because I reckon you'll start seeing, because of the shift in marathon running and how aggressive it's going to get, I think more marathons in future will be won from the second group, potentially. Mm. But that depends on race organizers, because if I send my group one out at 60-30 halfway pace, or 60 maybe, because they're going to let's go sub two, 60 and see who survives, if, if the top eight all go with that, then no one's coming from behind because <laughs> the ninth best guy's not good enough. But if one of those top five or six says, no, 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 I'm going to go 61, I think you're going to see a lot of like marathons where it actually gets quite exciting. People yeah. are caught in the last five or six K because they're all blowing up and one guy's not because he's the only sensible guy in the race. Mm. So, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, I, I mean, when I think about it in terms of races competing against races for the sort of glory, and we're seeing so many world records broken this year, I can't really keep track of when the world record is broken. Yeah, but yeah. to be the first race that has an, a sub two hour marathon will be huge because it will be a bit like the sub four minute mile. Yeah, you know, track. everybody will always remember that particular race. Yeah. So it doesn't matter what happens after that, it's going to be that mm. first sub two hour marathon. So I'd imagine there's a huge amount of goings on behind the scenes at all the marathons around the world right now where they're thinking, how could we do this? We yeah. want to be the first race to break sub two hours because the 
the, the, the exposure will be enormous. Yeah, and, for, and there's only everlasting. four or five candidates, right? Yeah. Berlin, Valencia, Chicago has to be in that. Maybe mm. one of the Dutch ones and mm. one of the Middle Eastern races. I don't know. Mm. Maybe. Yeah. As long as they have it in the middle but of the yeah, night. Yeah, it's going to be... It, it's just interesting because like, I, I do think we're 2023 will go down as like obviously a double world record year and incredible world record, especially on the women's side. I, it, mm. It's un, unheard of to think that a woman can run two sub-66 marathons. Mm. <laughs> okay, and she didn't. She also ran a massive mm. sub-60. I think it was 65 on one of those hours. I forget now. But point is, there will be this aggressive pacing now to try and break that world record, and that's going to create opportunities mm. for other athletes, I think. Do you think it? Uh, do you think the women's equivalent of that two-hour marathon is a two-ten? There was a sub two ten. I mean, is that? Yeah, they're a long way off you, that though. Yeah, they are. But but mm. do you think it's fair to say that's the equivalent of a sub two hour men's marathon? Well, back back in the day, I think when, it's a bit unfair to uh, give what, that. When was the first sub two hour gimmick? It was Monza. Oh, Monza one twenty. Was it before COVID? I can't remember. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was. It was like a year before COVID. Yeah. So eighteen nineteen ish. There was an article that was published then saying that the women's equivalent of a sub two had already been run, and that was Paula Radcliffe's time. <laughs> that, that's right. That's minutes slower than what we saw happen this mm -hmm. year. So, in actual fact, if that logic is applied, and I don't think that logic was true, I think it's been shown up a little bit. Mm. Then, then this two eleven fifty three that we saw earlier this year is way under the men's two hour equivalent. Right. But it's not. It's not. I mean, yeah, uh, it's most difficult to compare. Yeah. So, I mean, that's. Yeah, I, I just. Two eleven, crazy. Mm. So what did Gerda Stein run? Two twenty four, just under two twenty five. Mm, that's like that's like and she 20, was at, twenty, almost twenty seconds a k. Mm. What's frightening about it's that? Incredible. I mean, that was a South African record that had stood for Milana Mayer's yeah. days almost yeah. thirty years ago, um, twenty nine years ago, and um, that was I mean, it was obviously an outstanding time, but she was only eleventh in the race. I mean, she wasn't <laughs> even in the top ten with that race. I, I mean, know. it was brilliant, but it wasn't even on the radar. And that's where of, that's, where and that's Valencia. See, it's not yeah. one of the big ones like yeah. New York. Exactly. Yeah, that's where you'll see interesting like game theory it's almost poker now being played out like what do i do you know and that's mm. the question you put to her is what do i do here mm. if she if she goes out she's running 224 right mm. if she goes out in 70 she could run 228 you know yeah she could blow up massively and run an eight minute positive Correct. split yes. but if she goes out in 71 30 she can come 11th but if she's tempted to go out in 70-30, she could come eighth. And what's the prize money difference versus the risk of blowing up? Mm. That's the calculus that's now going to have to be made, right? Mm. And, that's, and that's, where she, that's where she is. Yeah. 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 What do I do? I mean, what do you do? You've broken the yeah. South African record. She's broken the two records of the biggest ultras here in South Africa yeah. last, this year. And, um, and then, so what's the next step? The next step is to take that risk. So... I have a 10% chance of running 222, yeah. or I have a 90% chance of running 224. Yeah. Which one's better for me to go for today? Yeah. I know what I would do, but I'm not an elite athlete. But again, it depends. Like You'd, you'd take the 90% the, 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 the chance. I'd take the risk. You'd take the risk? I'd take the risk. Especially if you've broken the South African record. Yeah, maybe. You've got to give yourself a chance. You've got to say, right, I would train for a 222. You want to look, you've got to look, you've got to remember always like there's a risk and then there's the reward against that risk, right? Yeah. So if the reward for the ninety percent chance of running two twenty four is to come eleventh, then mm. then you've got to take the risk because mm. there, there's actually no reward. Mm. <laughs> and I also I suppose so in training you know what you can and cannot do. She knows, but maybe potentially that she can't run five yeah. seconds quicker. Yeah, so it's it's, it's, uh, it's one of those where 
in the marathon it's simultaneously interesting and really boring times because <laughs> exactly. i'll be honest the marathon bores me a lot at, at the moment yeah i so struggle I really struggle to lift myself to mm. get excited like i used to mm. that's because of the pacing it's one runner yeah. in the front there's not much racing going on yeah. hopefully once the, this two hour mark has been broken and uh, whenever, yeah. whenever that is we will see more racing and, and maybe the elimination of pace setters and that sort of mm. thing i i hope that they will do that one day because racing yeah. for me is much more entertaining than just seeing a fast time. But yeah, best marathon of the year was New York. You know, they have no pacemakers yeah. because they know it's not going to be super fast. Yeah, and so World the women's another the one. women's race yeah. in New York was really really good for that reason. Yeah, and yeah. that's the same thing applies to the Olympic marathon um, in twenty twenty four. Those are the those are the marathons that I watch because they are races. There's no yeah. pace setting. With you. Anyway, so next one on um, other news. Well, we did a, on a podcast about this a uh, couple of um, podcasts back on the turtle and the water immersion story. And that was fascinating because some of the preliminary sort of research coming out of that was that uh, this cold water immersion, of course, Wim Hof being the, the man whose name is behind most of this kind of science, or maybe we could even say pseudoscience. I mean, it, there's obviously there was question marks about that first bit of research to say mm. well you know was it done properly but it certainly didn't show cold water immersion favorably but now new research coming out about particularly performance basis yeah this was a study that was published uh, earlier this year in the journal of sports science and i suppose the the reason you do this is because oftentimes athletes are faced with a challenge where they've got to produce two really big efforts within a few hours of one another and the question is in the gap in between those efforts what's the best way to recover and then rebound because if you if if you if you have more than a day and you've or potentially you've got a few more than a couple of hours then i think it's largely agreed that like some cold water immersion get the inflammation down aids recovery and allows you to then perform better in the next bout in contrast if you want training adaptations the inflammation is part of the stress that drives the adaptation. So when you are in a training block and you are trying to get fitter, stronger, better, cold water immersion might shut off adaptation. Makes sense, right? right. Yeah. And this is kind of like they're, they're testing the, 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 the extreme where you've only got a couple of hours. And so what they did was with ice skaters at national level, so pretty good athletes, they did an exhaustive ice skating training session and then the participants then either did hot water immersion, so that's heat therapy, cold water immersion, or active recovery. And then after 90 minutes, so in other words, the, the, the first session finishes, 90 minutes later, they do a repeated sprint cycle session, and the outcome of interest is power output in that cycle. And what they find is that the active recovery group and the hot water immersion group produce higher power outputs in that sprint cycling session than the group that did the cold water immersion. So the, the cold water immersion seems to then affect your subsequent exercise when it's close enough to the bout. Yeah. And they find that there was a relationship between the muscle temperature during recovery and the maximal power output. So in other words, the cold water immersion cooled the muscles down. So it worked. But that then means that you've got cooler muscles when you have to then sprint, and that's not good. Kind so of logical, the, though. Yeah, fairly. Mm. Um the, the, there's always like the search for the trade-off is like cooling off and getting the inflammation down might allow you to actually produce better power output later you know recover faster be fresher like effectively reset for the next mm. bout but this study suggests that that doesn't work so if you've only got 
up to an hour and a half, maybe two hours, you wouldn't want to cool the athlete is what this is saying. The implication for this that's interesting, and I shared it with a, an elite athlete who we will soon release a podcast with, mm-hmm. is that they've explored, he's an elite mountain biker, they've explored cold water immersion before races. And this would suggest that you do not want to do that either because the direct cooling of the muscle is what compromises your muscle ability, right? Mm. So you'll often see athletes wearing ice vests or trying to stay cool with fans and cold water over the head and pouring. The other method that's quite common is to ingest a slushy, Mm. like the ice. What's interesting about that is it has to be solid. It can't be cold liquid Mm -hmm. because it's the process of that melting from solid slushy into liquid that actually causes the heat drop in your body temperature so the athlete wants to be cooler but you don't want to be muscles and skin to be cold so that's the challenge yeah Yeah. i mean it's just i mean as you'll i mean the podcast we're doing which is coming up um we will get that out early in 2024 um but he actually talked a little bit about the fact that he does is exactly like that in terms of if he was doing repeated racing yeah. then you would use the, the, the cold water immersion to recover. But if he's doing repeated bout exercise sessions, mm. he doesn't want to eliminate that uh, yeah. adaptation. Like someone in a so high really intensity. critical to understand when you use it. Right. So for instance, if you're in a high intensity stage race, Cape Epic, mm. or if you are a cyclocross rider, okay, I don't think, you see, there's not massive muscle damage in those events anyway. So you might, you think that the benefit's probably quite small. But those are the kinds of situations where cold water would be potentially beneficial. Mm. The moment you are in a situation where you don't need to perform, but you need to training, you need to adapt to training. You don't want cold, mm. and if the moment you need to perform soon after, you also don't want cold. So there's mm. there's a window of opportunity depending on your incentives that mm. probably drives your decision, yeah. and that's true around all inflammation. We've we spoke a little bit in the context of my own wounds about inflammation. That's true for taking anti-inflammatories. Mm. They they probably blunt your training response. Mm. You can you could you could not waste time, but you could be getting less bang for your buck mm. if you trained on anti-inflammatories than you would without them. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. Another one that's come up and is always controversial is the ketogenic um, diet. Which um, for those of you that follow Professor Tim Noakes, of course, Ross Tucker's mentor a few years back, mm. a few years back, a couple of decades back, and just, just uh, one, just one, just one decade, one and a bit, one and a bit decades. But <laughs> I mean, this is always an interesting one because um, the ketogenic diet is very much in vogue at the moment, and there are those out there who promote the fact that it's the best way to go and there's carnivore diets and all that sort of thing. But now there's some research and some debate, um, but the research is kind of contradicting each other, isn't it, at the moment? Yeah, so the the Journal of the American College of Sports Medicine is called MSSE. It's Medicine and Science in Sports and Exercise, pretty well-known journal. And they published, the way that I gather it from the sequence is that Tim Noakes wrote an article called Ketogenic Diets are beneficial for athletic performance. That was December 2023. I'll share these links. That The journal then obviously decided they would invite a contrasting perspective. And so Louise Burke, who's an who's a exercise physiologist and nutritionist from Australia, wrote a piece together with Jamie Whitfield saying ketogenic diets are not beneficial for athletic performance. And then Tim obviously responds to that with a subsequent saying. <laughs> so where can you find to, that? Is that debate then on the MSCC? Yeah, Medicine, Science and Sports and Exercise. You may need a subscription to it because it's mm. one of these where you've got to buy the paper specifically. Right. It might be a while yet before it's available through the sort of the freer ones. But, but yeah, so, I, mean, so I, the I haven't size... read them yet myself because this yeah. came out after, I haven't, as I say, I haven't read anything on a computer screen for a while. But 
Um, why, so, I mean, why is there a debate? This is what I don't get about the ketogenic th- style, because from what I understand of it, there's the big move towards carbs and endurance sports in particular because carbs fuel the body and mm-hmm. you need to fuel the body when you're exercising. So if you're not fueling the body, you're only relying on protein and and that sort of thing. You're not you can't feel. But so I'm I'm, I'm struggling to understand. Surely the science speaks for itself in this situation. In other words, you can't. The body needs that. You have to have that. Therefore, you can't do that. And I understand why you how mm. you can use ketogenic diets if you're training at a low intensity level and you can go for hours and burn fat and drink milk for your water bottle. But it, yep. it's yeah. Yeah. well, I does think, it feel like that to you? In other words, like yeah, it, I, I think though you know it's been for the last decade, especially here in South Africa with banting and the Joss. ways that it's been applied is. The line between scientific and ideological position is quite difficult to tell apart sometimes, right? Mm. And so I think that's what's happened is that the, there's probably one or two lines of evidence suggesting that ketogenic diets are healthier in some circumstances for some people and that some athletes in some contexts can get away with ketogenic diets. But then that becomes their beneficial for performance, which is quite a different claim. Mm. And I think the difference between the claim and the evidence is ideology. I think people want them to be beneficial. Because meanwhile, what's happening in the real world of elite athletes is that they are shifting to say, used to be we, th- we said 60 grams an hour, now it's 90, 100, 120, 140. The more, the, the more carbs we can get in, the better we will perform. And that is what they are doing because it works. You know, it's like I've often spoken, like there's a certain Darwin, Darwinian um, reality to elite sport is that they test everything and what works persists and what doesn't becomes extinct yeah those athletes have tried ketogenic diets you know they have guarantee yeah <laughs> in like this time of year 100%. wherever they are in their training camps in the south of spain italy here in stellenbosch athletes are tinkering and t- trying out different things and they very quickly discover that they cannot sustain the intensity or the volume or both of training on that diet and they say right mm. let's try something else and eventually they find the thing that becomes widely used. And that <clears throat> thing is the carbs. Mm. So even in the real world, the application tells you what's happening. Yeah. But the evidence, and Louise Burke, incidentally, has got a couple of quite good studies on carb restriction in elite athletes doing high-intensity training. A lot of them are race walkers. Now, race walkers are not like track cyclists. They're not even Tour de France cyclists where it's a 20-minute effort at close to VO2 max or very high intensities. But even there, they're showing pretty solidly that race walkers become less efficient. Their performance goes down when you restrict carbohydrates. And that's the basis for her response to Tim's article. I haven't read these two myself, mm-hmm. so I'm not sure how Tim is going to try and argue this. But but in the elite, in the world of elite athletes, the carbs are non-negotiable. Yeah. And to some extent, they're also non-negotiable for anybody that's relatively see serious about their sport in any in right. respects. You know exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I I'll share the two links, and you can if you if you have access to the papers, mm-hmm. I'll I'll get access. This was literally published a week ago, and so even my university affiliation doesn't have them yet. It takes a couple of weeks, so we'll read them at some stage. And Louise is someone we've had discussions with her about getting on the podcast actually, and maybe in twenty twenty four we need to yeah. try and make that happen. You know, yeah. because it'll be good to hear it from her, her own evidence for it. And she's at the forefront of much of the nutrition run mm. sport, isn't she? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. And that's why I'm inclined to believe someone who's spent 30, 40 years studying effectively evolution of nutrition. Mm. You know, the Darwin thing. Like she's, 
Yeah. Like when we were cavemen, we used to go out exactly. and hunt animals and never eat vegetables. Come say. on, man. That's what they say. But that's like, huh? I promise you, that's the same thing as Taylor Swift's three hours, 15 marathon. <laughs> it's one of those stories that like just gets amplified in its retelling. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, when we were cavemen, but then we didn't run 60 minute half marathons. We no. didn't. Who's to say it was optimal? We did it, mm. but it wasn't optimal. We could probably mm. do it now, but you wouldn't want well, to. Well, the caveman story is that they're probably going for a long, long time at a low intensity, extremely low. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. like sort of twenty k's over six hours. Yeah, 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 yeah. All yeah. right. Well, that's going to be. <laughs> it's interesting to see how this always develops because to, uh, Professor Tim Noakes is very polarizing in some respects. I mean, he's got his own on Instagram. There's a Tim Noakes Foundation page and all sorts mm. of things. So, you know, sometimes I read this and even despite our discussions, I look at this and go, oh, maybe there is something in this. And then you look at the facts and you go, no, there isn't. And it's, there's so much, it's, you know, even, even if you're absolutely clued up in all the science, it's hard to sometimes ignore some of the benefits. And there are so many people out there um, that are promote, promoting it. You know, they're a bit like ex-smokers. You know, mm. they they once they're on that, that sort of carnivore diet. I mean, we've seen local athletes in South Africa. Mariska Strauss is a top athlete, being on a podcast the other day talking about the fat has changed her life and etc. But she's a competitive athlete. What does she race on then? What's in her? Well, water that's the point. She's she's been sick with a heart issue for a while, and now she's gone into this sort of ketogenic um, a carnivore diet. But she hasn't raced since she's been on that diet. So that's going to be interesting because mm. if she comes back to a competitive space, how competitive is she going to be? And yeah. I think that will be the true test. Is she going to be able to go out there and race with the very best at the Epic and around you know, cross-country courses? Or... I mean, there, there are studies that show that um, recovery and mood state, subjective and objective markers of recovery are significantly mm. worsened when you train on a low-carb diet. Mm. Even when you're doing not necessarily race intensity training sessions, but mm. in those blocks that athletes would be maybe doing right now where they're doing relatively high volume with a little bit of intensity, like sort of sprinkled in, mm. your ability to recover from that, you know, when you're on the bike for five, six hours and you're doing that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, mm. that's after two, three weeks, I would be very surprised if that's sustainable. So whenever athletes say that, like I wonder whether they're saying my habitual diet is this, but actually, when you start looking at it, when they need it, and when we did our nutrition podcast with Graham Close, his catchphrase was fuel for the work at hand. And so when, when Strauss or anyone is doing those high intensity sessions, whether, you know, the carb oxidation rate could be in the grams per hour, like now, mm -hmm. per minute, sorry, not hour, obviously per hour, uh, maybe they're fueling it with carbs. So actually they are still putting carbs in because they know they need it. But habitually, they might still be ketogenic. And that, no one ever probes that. Mm. Instead, you create this picture that this is an athlete who never touches a carb. Yeah. I'm, I don't buy that. Mm. Don't buy it. Yeah. Because yeah. you can train low under some circumstances, get away with it. But when you compete and when you train hard, you have to be high in carbs. But we know, as we have discussed in the podcast, a couple of podcasts back, that if you train low, you don't allow your gut to become used to yeah. a high carb situation, which is now exactly. what many of the top athletes are doing. So you exactly. have to train your gut so that's as much as you you'd want to say to, to Mariska Strauss, like, what does it look? Show me your hardest session of the week, that Wednesday yeah. when you went under eight times three minutes at like mm. way above your VO2 max equivalent power mm. Mm -hmm. or the or the four by eight, you know, like we, 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 we know mm. is a session they commonly use. 
what's your fuel utilization look like your fuel consumption look like there mm. maybe that maybe once a week is enough to train it and they're getting 60 to 80 grams and when mm. they compete in the epic or whatever they can get away with that but mm. i just don't see mm. yeah Anyway, we'll keep an eye on that one always because uh, it is something that is continually moving and shaking even though the evidence uh, always supports the fact that we probably need more carbs than we think. So look at the science when you're out there doing your sport uh, over this festive season. Anyway, moving on to our next subject. And this is something that has been a bit of a theme of the Science of Sport podcast over the last couple of years. And that's all around talent identification. And we've done podcasts uh, in the past around where people who are talented sportsmen are most likely to come from, whether they come from big towns and small towns. Turns out small towns probably favor big towns in that respect. But now there's new research coming out showing the proliferation. I think a lot of people who have talented children will go, what is the likelihood of my son, daughter, of being able to go out and be a professional sportsman if they're showing talent at a young age. In other words, 13, 14, yeah. it's the top of their top of the pile. Um, and are they going to become professionals by the time they're 21, 22? So what is the latest saying about that? Yeah, so the latest is not actually original research. It's a systematic review and meta-analysis, which is kind of in the research considered to be the gold standard because what the researchers do here is they create quite stringent requirements for including versus excluding papers. And so you end up with what you hope is the best quality research, mm -hmm. and then you aggregate that research using a variety of tools and methods to try and come up with one finding out of 40-odd studies, more if, you, if you're lucky. And so this was a systematic review that was published in Sports Medicine, and it's called Effects of Early Talent Promotion on Junior and Senior Performance, a systematic review and meta-analysis. And so what they do is they find... Um, a collection of studies that in the end comprises 6,233 athletes. So, you know, each study might be a couple hundred, but now you aggregate, you get power. Mm, this yeah? is a proper sample size, isn't it? Yeah, and so the central finding, and I'm reading this from the results of the paper, the central finding is that the effects on short-term junior performance versus long-term senior performance are opposite, right? whereby higher-performing junior athletes begin talent promotion programs at younger ages than low-performing athletes. In contrast, higher-performing senior athletes begin talent promotion programs at older ages than lower-performing senior athletes. Now, I suppose the question is, what's a talent promotion program? Would be any, any deliberate investment that you make into a young person's coaching and talent development. So sending them to an academy mm -hmm. would be the obvious one putting them in programs where they are now effectively junior elite athletes. Programs that are intended to accelerate the development of talent are less likely to produce high-performing senior athletes, more likely to produce high-performing junior athletes. So it's a, it's a, you can have it here and now if you invest young, or you can have it delayed, but it's less likely the younger you invest. That's what that's saying. And that's, 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 so this caught my eye because as you know, like this year I started working with that running academy and we mm -hmm. are, we would be a talent um, promotion program because we go around the country and we try and find kids from disadvantaged backgrounds and we put them in a school situation and we give them coaching and nutritional support and in the hopes of trying to accelerate their development. And this study is warning us that if we're not careful, we will be very good at producing good 17, 18 year olds, but not very good at producing good adults. And which do we want? And do we know, do they suggest why that might be? In other words, are there so many factors? There's a, there's a few things. Cost. There's a few things and some of them are cause and some of them are not, you know. 
the one the one obvious one is that the people who who get the investment are the wrong people in other words they're early maturers for yeah. instance yeah and so you put all your your you put your eggs in the wrong basket mm. or you put the wrong eggs in the right basket you know what i mean yeah um because what happens then is that you invest resources expertise human coaching equipment competition etc financial into athletes whose ceiling actually is going to be reached when they're 17 18 right and so they look like really good junior athletes because they got all the good stuff you know they got all the resource but they probably hit their ceiling and they never go beyond that meanwhile the athletes who may may have gotten delayed maturation delayed growth come through and then end up being better seniors despite not having that access to early resources just because their potential level their ceiling was higher mm. so it might it might be that you make the wrong selection in terms of who gets to go into them the other thing which is maybe scarier but in a sense reassuring because it can be controlled is that your actual act of promoting talent undermines them by investing in the wrong things potentially putting too much pressure on young athletes focusing on the wrong outcomes and that's what the message to the coaches that i work with is we need to be careful because if we if, if we don't set the finish line for adulthood and we make our objective producing good young athletes then we will actually just contribute another data set to the study <laughs> yeah and so what do we want to do so like there is definitely a an element where young athletes who are pushed young into specializing in talent programs are less likely to be active as adults they're more likely to give the sport up the moment they get independence and autonomy because mm. they actually just, you know, they're tired of being elite athletes when they're 17 years old, so they stop. And so you want to make sure that you focus on the right things potentially to keep them viable for longer. That's the key. I think sometimes it's also like having had three children and seeing my uh, my elder sons going through the process of sport and that sort of thing that there's often a case where you get the expectations of the parents that put so much pressure on a mm. child when they're young mm. so they're pushing those expectations they want to be they want their mom and dad to be proud of them therefore they do mm. by the time they get to a point where they're making their own decisions they're not then capable of maintaining that motivation because mm. it's a different motivation so it's interesting because i mean if you look at that study how do you then change it with the program that you're working on because you are looking at young talent where do you find young talent if it's not with the people that are performing yeah. at that level? I mean, it's a complex solution, isn't it? Yeah, we, you can't. I mean, because like you can only pick based on what they're capable of today. Otherwise, you might as well just go random. You might as well just yeah. pick a phone book up and say, okay, from this town, we're picking three people. We're going to open the phone book and throw darts at the pages <laughs> mm. and say, we're going to use you because, but you can't. You have to like, you have to try and reward current performance as the, as the predictor of future performance and then you're in that trap potentially mm. right so, but but as long as you know it's there maybe you can try and like minimize its effects but then but then the main thing is to just promote like that you among the coaches that you make decisions that are based on what will be best for the athlete when they're 23 not when they're 16 17 and again the difference is you like that the differences also between the sexes are very significant because yeah. um, generally girls mature ahead of boys. So a 14, a 15 year old girl will potentially be as closer to being fully grown and mm. mature versus a boy of that age who might put on another five or six kilos yeah. or lose five or six kilos or if he's heavy, be the same as somebody else yeah. who's 21. So. And, and I mean, we're, we're lucky in a sense. Not, it's not luck because it's by design. It's Alana's design. So that we don't, we don't take a 13 or 14 year old athlete mm. and then take their scholarship away at 15, 16 because they're not performing. Mm. 
their, their school scholarship is guaranteed till they finish school. And the program has very much been set up to say like, actually, you know what, we want you to just finish in a way better school than you might otherwise have had access to, potentially get yourself a scholarship to a US or a South African university slash college, mm. and then the program will be successful, even if you don't end up running faster at 18 than you were at 15. And that happens, by the way, especially in the girls, because you can't really predict the direction maturation is going to take the body. Yeah. Right? And the, you, you would have known many examples of someone who's in this fabulous looking young athlete at 14, 15, and they just never quite kick on. Mm. We don't we don't kick them out for that reason. We work with them until they finish school. And then you say, okay, it's still successful because they, they got into a university set up because of their academic and school performance. So we're not under the, we're not under the same pressure. Like a, an academy would be at a football club in England where mm. if a kid is not making it from 14 into 15s into 16s, they actually get discarded. We don't have to worry about that. So luckily for us, <laughs> we don't have to worry about that. I mean, can you potentially create using some of the data that you can see from successful senior athletes and create an algorithm that suggests and looks at the potential of an athlete? So, for instance, Ilana Mayer, silver medalist at the Olympic Games, one of the great half marathoners around the world, great marathoner as well. Mm. In other words, she was a talented young athlete. Yeah. She's moved through the system. She became a mm. good senior as well. What made her there? And then creating a whole bunch of data points. Zola Bud, for instance, is another one. You can create a data point there. Where did she start? In other words, could you create something which you could plug into a system and say, right, this person matches the criteria of potentially being a good senior. Therefore, we can push them even though they're not necessarily showing youthful potential. The best thing I can think of there is you want to be able to say that to be a good adult athlete, let's say in the middle distance now, since you've picked up Zola and Ilana's mm. examples, you need someone who's going to be happy and capable of training for 15 to 20 hours a week at the age of 21. So how do we create that person? You know, yeah. And maybe the things you do to, to create a very successful 16, 17-year-old are less likely, in fact, more, are likely to reduce the chances that that person's going to be happy to do that. So you've got to play the long game. You know, and Elana always talks about it as well. She says, to make a good middle distance athlete, you've got to think like it's a six to eight year project. Mm. So if we pick up a 14 year old girl or boy, we have to be thinking about what that person's like at 2022. And you don't make decisions. You don't make changes. You don't load. You know, you get an athlete who hasn't run faster at 15 than they were at 14. You don't ramp the training volume up because they're not responding to training. You just play the long game and you say, let's be patient about this. And let's, mm -hmm. we want you to be running and training when you're 21, 22. Then you can make the call, you know? And then I suppose there's a philosophical conversation like, does it really matter if you're a good 17 year old but not a good adult? Mm -hmm. I suppose not really. No. Like, like mm. why, why must the objective be to make great adults? Mm. What, you, what you definitely don't want is someone who's a great junior and who does no sport at all from the age of 21 onwards because they just actually hate sport. Because <laughs> mm. then you get inactive, unhealthy adults with, with negative relationships. So, and that often happens so, when they're young, talented, yeah, exactly. and they, they lose they it. Because they get yeah. driven so much by parents. Mm. And actually, you mentioning that, there was a, there was a really good um, incoming. There was a really good interview, like a snippet of an interview with Padraig Harrington, the golfer, that did the rounds on social media this week. And I'll try and find it and put it up. And basically, it was, his, it was him giving his advice to parents of kids who want their kids to be good golfers. And the fundamental message is, like, you could do, if you did nothing other than buy your son or daughter a Coke after they've played a bit of golf on a Saturday morning, 
that would be enough because they would associate golf with positive things. And every time they played from then on, they would have that association with time with mom, time with dad, you know? Yeah. And he said, make it fun, make it fun. I mean, and it's it's funny because we, we did a we did a podcast on this and I remember the social medias, there were a few people saying, oh, this is just woke PC nonsense. <laughs> yeah. It's actually, it's actually not. Eh? This is the high performance advice is yeah. make it fun. Make it fun. That's the high performance advice. Your 14, yeah. 15 year old kid, if they're not having fun, they are less likely to be high performance athletes. Yeah. And Padraig Harrington says this in this little two-minute sermon, which I must post for you because he says it really well. I thought it was pretty pretty impressive. And we've talked about the fact that we look at the Tiger Woods examples versus the Roger Federer examples. Yeah, yeah and we get misled. Yeah, we misled. Yeah. We always believe those are the successful. Start mm-hmm. Venus Williams, the Williams sisters, starting exactly. when they're five years old. Those are actually mm-hmm. the outliers whereas Correct. most successful sports people start later in yeah, life. Yeah, and you don't, know that they're gonna, you don't know that they came that way. But yeah. I'll tell you one thing is Tiger must have had fun. Whatever, whatever, in whatever way Tiger had fun as a kid, he must have still been having fun, because hmm. he wouldn't have kept going. Hmm. And, and well, do you see you some of his interaction? Pathology. <laughs> yeah, but you see some of his interaction with his son Charlie, where there is a lot of there's hmm. a lot of fun between the two of them. And yeah. Charlie's obviously a very talented golfer in himself. There's hmm. some amazing footage on yeah. on the interwebs about that. But there's a sense hmm. that Tiger Woods has ingrained that sense of of joy in the game. Yeah, and the joy might which, be the challenge. Yeah. But you he's know, but he's fun to watch like Charlie fun. Woods. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. But that's the key is like if 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 they if they see a challenge and they want to rise to it, then by all means, you see, but it has to be their challenge yeah. to quote something 100%. from All Black Mantra. And and yeah, it's a it's fun and challenge and and stimulating and just facilitating opportunities. But the moment your expectations are transferred or your mm. challenge becomes mm. theirs, I think you lose young people. You know. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's the key. And and I, I know it sounds PC, but it actually is the truth. <laughs> Yeah. So before we get on to our sort of picks of the year, a final, I mean, we have talked about a lot this year and it has been one of the themes because of the Rugby World Cup, but uh, there's a new head guard that's potentially yeah. out there to what they're saying, this particular manufacturer, is that this is a chance of preventing concussions. Yeah. And the background, of course, is that there has been some discussion about the fact that American football helmets prevent concussions which they've since discovered is not necessarily true in fact it might make them worse but is there any merit in the fact that these head guards are going to do a better job than not not yet nothing really there's nothing else doing it not yet but i was actually involved in a conversation this morning with someone who who asked about this because this was a piece that was published a couple of weeks ago in the guardian new head guard brings hope of game-changing safety breakthrough and it's a company in the uk not the first company in the U- or in the world who's claimed that they've got head guards. Remember, head guards in rugby mm. are different from helmets, helmets because yeah. it's a soft shell, one layered thing. Um, and what the article basically says is this company is ready to go to market and they're just waiting for World Rugby's approval. Now, World Rugby isn't quick to approve equipment like this because there's two there's two problems or risks. One is that it doesn't work and it's sold as something that works, but it doesn't. And then you well, just, this particular one, you don't know that any yet. any head any equipment basically any protective equipment. What if it doesn't work? Is the first question. Yeah, right? but they, you don't know what the results of this. No, particular you don't know. Head the, don't know any of them. Yeah, <laughs> which is the dilemma we'll get onto shortly. Mm. And then the second problem is what is the risk of that device to opponents? You know, like you can, yeah, you could put a helmet on and say it protects me, but I'm going to injure all of you blokes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so World Rugby has to be quite careful. Shoulder pads is the same kind of thing, you know, mm. like and even even like GPS units that used to fit behind the well they still do now because they were eventually approved but having a hard piece of plastic is that going to pose a risk to other so 
So the point is, it's not just, hey, oh, by all means, go ahead, let's, let's try it out. You have to be a little bit cautious about equipment. Mm. The problem is, and where this gets frustrating, is that until it is shown to have a benefit, it's not approved, but it'll never be approved until it's shown to have a benefit. So we are stuck in a, in a catch-22 of our own desire to have evidence. Yeah. And that's the challenge. And so one of the, one of the earliest manifestations or illustrations of why we believe the mouth guards are so beneficial, this is the instrument of mouth guards that measure head acceleration, is because as it stands right now, without those mouth guards, to study whether a head guard works, you would have to take a group of literally hundreds, if not thousands of players. Mm. And for two years, maybe, you'd have to track them. And you'd have to measure how many tackles the players make with head guards, without head guards. How many times did a player get concussed with head guards and without head guards? Because only then can you work out the true risk of the head guard versus not having the head guard or benefit. Yeah. Makes sense, right? Yeah. Yeah. There were, let's say for argument's sake, there were 17,000 tackles made by players without head guards and 3,200 with head guards. And of those 17,000, there were X concussions. And in the 3,200, there were Y concussions. Which one's higher? But now that's a two-year-long study with hundreds of players. And it's, it's just nothing. It's just the whole thing is going to grind to a halt. You know? mm. The thing about mouth guards is that we can now measure in 30 matches. We can have 20,000 head impacts. And of those 20,000 head impacts, 250 will be relatively significant. So now in 20 matches, we can get an indirect answer to that question without having to wait for the concussions to happen to whether the head guard slows the head down. Mm. Theoretically, if the head guard slows the acceleration of the head down, it'll protect against concussions. Mm. If it doesn't, it won't. And that's always been the problem, right? Is so that's can, the definition of a concussion is the speed at which the head is well, it's a accelerated it's a or decelerated. It's a consequence of the acceleration of right. the head because either linearly or rotationally, excessive acceleration of the head is going to cause those forces inside the brain. So right. it's, it's a consequence of it. Makes sense, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. So we're in a position now where thanks to the mouth guards, we can potentially study quite quickly the answer to claims or the, or the we can test the veracity of claims like this. Our head guard prevents concussions. Well, we're not going to measure whether it prevents concussions. We're going to measure whether it reduces head acceleration and prevents the highest head accelerations in the game. We're going to have 20 matches with head guards, 20 matches without, or 15 and 15, whatever, and, and measure that. Yeah, that's the kind of question we can now mm. attempt to answer. Because historically, the head guards are very good at preventing impact-related injuries, um, abrasions and skull fractures and that sort of thing. But they haven't been very good at preventing concussions, mostly because the concussion happens inside the skull as a result of movement of the brain inside the head. And that's mm. not something a head guard's ever affected. Mm. And many will say, well, these ones won't either. And quite possibly that's true. But my counterpoint is that five years ago, we never had shoe cushioning that was both elastic and shock absorptive. And now we do. And look what it's done to running. <laughs> Why yeah. can't new tech and innovation in materials produce something that is both cushioning and dampening to head mm. acceleration? I, I don't see it as completely beyond the realms of possibility. But they have to be tested because at the moment, this piece here just creates this expectation that it works and it's never been tested. I read this article. I said, this is news to me. Yeah. And you're working in this space. And I'm working in this space. I'm with World Rugby. And they're, they're saying in this article, um, they're just waiting the green light of approval for governing body World Rugby. Yeah. That, that, if there was a green light, and that's even that's a question mark, mm. 
it wouldn't be approval. It would be to test it mm. because they still haven't got the injury surveillance study that shows that this thing works. It's a claim. It's not a reality. Yeah. And so, but but then from that, from this at the same time, I can appreciate from the perspective of the head guard manufacturer, they're saying, why are you so slow? Mm. Well, we're so slow because it's going to take years to answer it if we study concussions. Mm. But the mouth guard, we might be able to put this research into hyperdrive mm. and do something really quickly. So maybe that's something that starts happening next year. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, it'd be interesting to see if there is some evidence that yeah, comes out of that. And, I mean, I, mean I was just the week before the cycling trip, ill-fated cycling, I was in New York for a meeting with NFL and other collision sports. They really do believe that the helmets in the NFL make a difference. And even now they've got a another contraption that makes the players look like characters in a Mario Brothers TV game mm. where they put the helmet on and then there's a external cap on the outside of it like a soft shell on the outside it's mm. called the guardian cap mm -hmm. and they reckon that that guardian cap which they use in pre-season has reduced the concussion risk quite considerably there as well so they're exploring new tech and new ways to mm. incorporate that kind of concept into helmets and their, their top biomedical engineer is a guy called jeff crandall a really interesting entertaining and impressive guy and he reckons that in rugby, if you just gave him a little bit of space, he could make headgear that reduce the concussion risk. Because that's always been the problem is there's not, it's not enough of a scaffold to cause mm. the head acceleration to change. Mm. And he says, oh, I could, I could do this. You know, football helmets do it. So they, they really believe that helmets are the way to go. And they, mm. they are committed to that. And they've got what they believe is solid evidence for it. In rugby, it hasn't worked. But he's, he reckons that it's not inconceivable. <laughs> Mm. Very, very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I must say one of those things where, um, you know, one of the, I think it's one of those things where there's continuous debate. And there was obviously this pressure on, as we talked about before, on rugby and on uh, various um, NFL's teams where they're actually having to be in a situation where they want to make sure that they're looking after the safety of the of the players. Because in the long term, they don't want people coming back to them to say you didn't do enough. And I think rugby's trying to do enough. And obviously the NFL is yeah. in the same boat, isn't it? Yeah, yeah exactly the same. And, and with evidence, right? So that, that's where you can say to people, yeah, put the head guard on. What's the worst that could go wrong? Mm. You know, so it doesn't work. That's okay. If, if nothing else, it, it'll do nothing. But actually that's not true because if nothing else, it might increase the risk mm. because players think they're protected. They take more risks. That's that Superman effect, that risk mm. con compensation thing. And even if you do that and you you sell something or you endorse something that works and it doesn't work well mm. then you've misled people into thinking they're safer mm. than they are mm. so you can't you can't just do it you know it's and it's frustrating because i think from the outside people say why are you sitting on this mm. if there's a potential go yeah but hang on a moment yeah like <laughs> there's a potential for something else to happen too and we have mm. to be careful so yeah. yeah that's where we are yeah Anyway, so to wrap things up uh, in 2023, and a big thank you to all of you that have been participating in our social media channels and particularly to our Patreon supporters. If you do want to support us on Patreon, you can go to patreon.com. It's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and look for the Science of Sport podcast. And uh, for a very small amount of money, which is about the price of a, a coffee uh, or maybe two coffees, depending on what level half, you want. Half a coffee. Half a New coffee. York, half a London. coffee in New York. Yeah, there we go. You mm -hmm. can become part of our patrons and and be out there and support. And you do get some pretty cool stuff. Once Ross has recovered, there'll be some <laughs> regular newsletters going out as they have been in the past. And of course, we do create content, especially for our patron supporters. But uh, big thank you to them, and particularly for their um, contribution.
contributions to some of the discussions we've had over the last year. And a few standout Patreon members who have been sending us a lot of information that they've spotted. And many of those have led to some of the discussions here on our podcast. So thank you to them and their very big participation. They're almost the, the third arm of our podcast in many respects, aren't they? On their yeah, yeah, very much. Yeah. I think people who, who go on those forums get more value from the post-podcast discussions than they do from the podcast <laughs> sometimes true. thanks to some of you members and we're going to actually look next year to formalize that and i know the patron the patron message board thing where, you, where i put up a post and then mm-hmm. people comment is quite hard to navigate some, sometimes i go there because i'm looking for something that maybe kevin McQuaid has said and i say Gee, where was that thing mm-hmm. i can't remember but we're looking at moving that to a more user-friendly interface and yeah. taking some of those comments into the show more regularly. So that'll be mm-hmm. something for 2024. Yeah, so massive thanks from me. And again, mm-hmm. I'm sorry I've been dormant for two weeks, but I'll get on it now. And uh, you'll see next year we're going to have a new look and some new intro stuff to us about upgrading a little bit on our podcast and uh, look forward to hearing what you think about that. But uh, let's just wrap up this year. And uh, my first question to Ross, and it's always an interesting one, is uh, I, I imagine I know what you're going to say here, but maybe not because I never know what you're going to say. Your sporting highlight for 2023, what would it be? The quarterfinal of the Rugby World Cup. <laughs> I knew you'd say something odd. <laughs> so be the, but 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 yeah, but you knew it'd be the Rugby World Cup. I I'm knew sure. it'd be the Rugby World Cup. Yeah. No, the quarterfinal was against that was against the South France. Africa France game. Yeah, yeah. But you know, the night before was Ireland New Zealand, and Ireland mm. uh, New Zealand beat Ireland in what then looked like one of the great games of all time. And then the next night, that French stadium mentioned it at the time. I've never in my life experienced an atmosphere like the first twenty minutes of that. It was yeah. unreal. Mm-hmm. And like the biggest regret of the year is that that wasn't the final. That mm. should have been the final. That's the two best teams in the world. Mm. Ireland three, New Zealand maybe four. But the way that the draw worked out, unfortunately that game had to happen too early in the tournament and it took the it took the air out of the tournament a little bit mm. once France were Lost eliminated. Because I can that match in the final would have been like like yeah. Armageddon. Le Bleu. It would, would have been, been un- going unbelievable. Mad. But that 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 was for me the most incredible sports thing I've ever experienced live. Mm. Unbelievable. And I mean, you were there at the final watching the Springboks uh, mm. win that World Cup. I mean, that was, and again, being a South African there, that's obviously quite special to be part of that. Yeah, I remember yeah. saying to Leanne, like, this may never happen again. Eh? Like, yeah. not just it to possibly. win a World Cup, but to win a, to defend a World Cup. Yeah. Like, in our lifetimes, we may not see this, especially yeah. the way we did it. Mm. Um, one, three points in three matches, cumulatively. Yeah. And it's cumulatively. astonishing. Astonishing. <laughs> like, it's amazing, amazing. Three and weeks. for those of you that don't, get why it's important here in South Africa for many different reasons. Just a few days ago, we actually had a public holiday yeah. which was there to celebrate the victory of the Springboks of the World Cup. So that's mm. the importance of which, even at national government level, they're seeing it as an important milestone in our in our South African history, not just around sports. So it's it's significant. He missed a trick there because, you know, I think we won that final 12-11, right? Mm-hmm. Should have, the public holiday should run on the 11th of December <laughs> so that it would memorialize the scoreline in a date. <laughs> I think you're overestimating the ability of our government officials <laughs> to think beyond their noses. But anyway, so credit, credit for them giving it, uh, well, I suppose there is some debate about whether we should have a public holiday for a sporting event, but uh, yeah. that's not a story for that. Uh, for the last podcast. World Cup was one thirty two twelve against England, so that one wouldn't have quite worked, but it yeah. should have been a public holiday on the 32nd of December, but not quite. Mm. But this one was a chance. You could have made it 12-11. Mm. And for the next however many years, we could have thought back to that day on the 11th. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sporting events you would have most liked to, like, liked to have seen live? I was jealous that you were in Budapest without me. 
because that that looked like a cool. And I think it was, and it was it wasn't like, cool. It was blooming hot. Yeah. <laughs> then I think where's the next world champs? Okay, Tokyo. Tokyo. Mm. Been there. And I'm Tokyo is cool. Don't get me wrong, but it's just the jet lag, the mm. travel demand, and so on. And yeah. and I, there's something about Europe, you know. So I would have loved to. So I would have loved to do that. Uh, what else has been really good this year? The, the 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 cycling world champs in Glasgow. That street circuit looked super cool. That that really steep hill that eventually decided the race looked like an amazing place to watch cycling from. I wish I could remember the name of the road because there was so much yeah, talk about the road. Same. It was like Bower Street or something. something I don't like know. that. And yeah. then uh, just to, and also just to be in Glasgow because like mm. it got a lot of criticism, but that Super Worlds would have been fun. Yeah, mountain biking, um, road, track, everything together. Yeah, to go to that mountain biking circuit where yeah. they had that amazing. Remember, there's some incredible photographs mm. of them doing that jump over mm. the ferns. Mm. Mm. Look cool. Yeah. And then the other thing, the other thing is actually, and I'm busy watching it right now again, and I, I definitely have to go to this, is that cyclocross circuit in Belgium mm. now at this time of year where they do like a race on a Wednesday, race on a Saturday, mm. Sunday, and you get to go see Van Poel, Van Art, Pidcock, and you get to stand there, watch, drink beers and watch them race. That that looks like one of the coolest sports things yeah. to go to. It's a cool so like that's definitely on my bucket list. <laughs> Yeah, go to like here in Tulsa and, and mm. where was it this this past weekend? There were a few. There was mm. anyway, that it look, that looks cool. Just the the atmosphere at places mm. like that is quite extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I would say that I wish I'd been at the final of Alcaraz versus Djokovic at Wimbledon. Alcaraz winning that one. But I mean it is for me, Carlos Alcaraz is just I mean, he's definitely the next level up. And we know that Djokovic has ended the year as the world number one and deservedly so, but Alcaraz is just something about that player that he's another level compared to everybody else the athleticism the ability to get around the court is just i mean he he is the best i've ever seen for getting around a court whether that will give him some longevity i don't Mm, know because that could be in questions issues but he is spectacular Mm. to watch as a tennis player you know and yeah uh, in fact i enjoy it they played the final in the u.s as well was it the semi-final i lost track pushing me now yeah travel in the world cup tennis uh, world cup rugby but but both both those games looked extraordinary. Mm. Um, mm. What's interesting there is that Alcaraz was. It feels like he was closer to Djokovic at the end of twenty two than he is now. Yeah, because there's been like more Djok- consistency yeah. from Djokovic throughout yeah, the year. But yeah. that's just an age thing. I mean, Alcaraz is twenty one years old. You know? Could be, could be. But it'll yeah. be interesting to see whether he kicks on because he wouldn't be the first player who reaches a level where you predict him to be the next big thing, and then yeah. you just never quite get on and. He's at he's at like a ceiling of now ninety nine percent of Djokovic. Yeah. Can he get to a hundred? Because, yeah. Whereas last year it looked like he was ninety nine point nine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when is Djokovic going to yeah, slide? I mean, I mean can he possibly every time going? we think he's on the on the tail end of his career, yeah. he has a year like he's had this year. So it's yeah. been amazing. Yeah. But it's exciting yeah. to watch tennis, and I struggle a little bit understanding the women's game because there's a whole bunch of players which I don't really know who's who's top and who's you know top five. That changes so much. But in the men's game, I kind of get that. And yeah, the women's game uh, remains an enigma because yeah. they're just. Like there are so many Grand Slam champions that never make it back to a quarterfinal, never yeah. mind another Grand Slam. Yeah, it's really yeah. interesting, like yeah. how fluid yeah. that is compared to how almost anchored men's tennis has been for the last mm. decade. It's mm. interesting. And the one thing I'd love to do one day, and I don't know whether I'll ever get the opportunity to do this, but just from an experiential perspective, I'd love to go and watch the the the, the um, NFL um, Super Bowl. Mm. Just just because. I think it's one of those things as a sporting person that you should watch because of the spectacle of it and understand that it's much more than that, but also understand how American sport works to some extent because 
for us living here in South Africa, and I think it probably applies to Europe and Australia and many of our listeners, in fact, our listener base very much in those areas. But sport in America is very different in many ways to sport that we see in the rest of the world. And you can criticize it, but you can also look at it and say Mm -hmm. the marketing and the ability to create hype is what drives the commercial success of those businesses Mm -hmm. over there. Whereas maybe we can learn a thing or two from that, but also keep the essence of the sport where it should be. Um, And I think there's always that battle. How glamorous do you make it? How sensational do you make it? Um, How much do you, is your halftime show as important as the game that the people are playing, you know, all that sort of thing. And I, I look at here in South Africa, we've got this um, uh, this um, 20 over series that's happening here very shortly. Mm. And there's all these different franchises, which I can't keep up with whose franchise is what. And it's what a case where I go like, okay, there's a lot of hype, but is there a lot of support other than for the actual cricket or is it just about the hype of being at the game and the fireworks, et cetera? Yeah. So it's, it's always a debate for me. Um, we talked a bit about Max Verstappen talking about yeah. um, the, the, this Vegas Formula One track. You know, how much was that hype versus reality and, mm. and passion? Um, so that, that's always a debate. And I think to be able to experience an American sporting event like the Super Bowl um, would just give you some perspective on what where is where American sport is versus the rest of the world. Yeah, when I was in New York now, we went to watch the next play the one night against the Pistons at Madison Square Garden. Yeah, it must have been amazing. And then two, two days later with the NFL, we went to watch the Jets against, uh, was it the Atlanta Falcons? I think it was the Falcons. Mm. And the basketball was really good. You know, like those, those basketball arenas, even Madison Square, which is quite a big one, they're really intimate, right? Because mm. you're enclosed and it's quite, you're quite close to the court, mm. even when you're in the cheap seats. And then the halftime, and even between, like when a timeout is called, it's amazing. Like they'll call a timeout, and within two seconds, there's a group of entertainers on the stage, on, <laughs> on, on the floor, and all the all the t-shirt cannons come rushing out from every corner, and they fire t-shirts into the cannon, and the timeout ends, and they're gone within two seconds. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. Like yeah. it's so well coordinated and scripted. The, mm. the production of the entertainment is almost as impressive as the play. Uh, the football was dead boring. It was rainy and windy and cold, and the teams are fairly mediocre. And I've I've been to far more entertaining rugby matches than that. Yeah. So the the spectacle obviously like relies on the substance of what's happening on the floor or on the field, but they do get it right. Mm. And it's not for lack of awareness and attempts and trying that rugby's not managed to do that. Mm. Mm-hmm. They just it just doesn't seem to translate that well. I don't mm. know what it is about it. I'll, I'll say. In rugby, like the, last weekend, the, they played a game up in Johannesburg where they had about two and a half thousand people in an eighty thousand seater stadium. Mm. Embarrassing. Yeah, like you got to just put them in a twenty thousand seater stadium <laughs> and get five, get get four thousand people in a twelve is better than eight in an eighty. You know, you know yeah. in terms of optics and sound and atmosphere. So that's yeah. little solutions like that. But yeah, I, I agree. It's um, mm. Super Bowl would be very cool to go to because there'd be yeah. no lack of hype there. Yeah. I was in Phoenix, which hosted the Super Bowl many years ago, and landing at the airport, everything in the airport was about the Super Bowl. And there were people waiting to ask you if you needed any help, NFL staff. There was a there was a Super Bowl expo to which you could buy tickets the two, three days before the actual game. And that, that was getting 300,000 people through its doors. Mm. And that wasn't even the game. It was just a fairground, basically, yeah. buy candy yeah. floss and yeah. aim footballs at a hoop, you know. That's, that's incredible yeah 
Anyway, so plenty to look forward to in 2024. We'll get into what our sort of highlights of 2024 is in our new podcast uh, for that time. But uh, we'll be back in the middle of January, I think, we're planning to be, taking a bit of a break over the festive season. Yeah, yeah, we look forward to that. I mean, there's a few things to look forward to. You see Pogacar's entered every race in Italy, basically. Right. You see that? He's doing the Giro. Right. Strada Bianchi, Milan San Remo, Lombardia. Basically, every race in Italy is going to win next year. Okay. So that's interesting for what it means for the tour. Yeah. Um, but what I was going to ask you, so semi-related to that, is your best podcast of the year. <laughs> oh, crikey. Um, that's a tough one. I think... Only because I just wanted to give it a punt because I thought it was so good, my answer. I think that um, the episode uh, that we did on carbohydrates, I think, was very fascinating because I think it's changed not only... You my life in terms of that and i certainly gained from that discussion when we did the double century 200 kilometer race a couple of weeks back where i certainly learned about that and i I think a lot changed in my life around that discussion um and we've since interviewed people and you'll hear an interview that we did with with this professional cyclist um in the new year um, around that and it's 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 a game changer because there's so much of the hype around anti-carbs that when you suddenly realize the reality and you actually start employing mm. some of those tactics it does change the way you see endurance sport you know for me personally yeah yeah that the timing of that podcast relative mm. to us doing dc and this race yeah, the week was, after two we weeks after well. was really good yeah. i wasn't necessarily thinking our podcast by the way but oh, the one, see. Yes, but I, the one I was going to mention was our best yes, was I, a, <laughs> I know what you're going to say here yeah there was an interview that the lantern rouge guys did with remco evanapool yeah. which was for me, the best interview of an athlete I've heard. Yes, I agree. Like podcast or not. I thought it was the best interview I've heard because something about those two guys, like I think the Aussie humor and the Belgian guys also quite a funny, yes. insightful, but they also have a lot of knowledge. They, they clearly have earned the respect of the riders, but they also disarm mm. them. Mm. And they got Remco Evenepoel to t- say things that I didn't mm. think any cyclist would ever say publicly. Yeah. It was amazing. Absolutely amazing. And it made me think that that's the kind of interview I'd like to do more of, but then we can we can dive a little bit more deeply into some of the scientific stuff and explore that. Yeah. So if I had a New Year's resolution, it would be to try and get more elite athlete insights into our podcast. But 100%. that podcast was done, I don't know, you can find it on YouTube, they, they put it up there, and then you can actually watch it in mm. addition to listen to it. That, that for me is one of the best athlete like dialogues I've ever heard. Yeah. No, I loved it too. So, it was really good. Yeah. I would definitely say that was my favorite as much as yours. I can't think of yeah. anything else. Yeah. I tend to listen to non-sporting podcasts a lot of the time um, because yeah. I, I love the, the personality profiles that you get on the various channels. But mm. uh, yeah, anyway. Cool. Anyway, so that's us for 2023. We're going to take a bit of a break, as I said, just for a couple of weeks. We'll be back in the middle of January with a new look, a new feel, a new voiceover, all sorts of new things to look forward to. But for now, it's goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started.